1: Welcome to the show. In fact, a new week of shows. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. Whatever is on your heart, I'll do the very best I can. Uh, all we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, hit the call now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340- Ninety-five, eighty-five. I hope you had a great weekend at church. I know we did. We had lots of people here yesterday for all of our services. Um, Additionally, it was a busy weekend for us. We had two brand new babies, uh, Pastor Samuel and Megan, who you in the audience have prayed for uh, in in the past. They just had their second son. Uh, His name is Phineas. And then just about an hour and a half ago, um, one of the teachers at our school, a young man that I've watched grow up from the time he was very, very small, uh, he just had his baby girl, Chloe. Uh, so, Daniel and Jessica, you can pray for a speedy recovery for Jess. And uh, we're just grateful to the Lord. Um, we always have a billion babies here, it seems. Um, but uh, these two are special. So. Uh, Thank you for those of you who were praying. Daniel, I know you're not listening this time, but everybody here, the kids at school, everybody was just absolutely thrilled to hear that all was well. Well, let's get to questions. And if you would uh, call us, it would always make for a better program. My first question today comes from Donald. Donald. Uh, Pastor, on Ephesians six eighteen, I want to know if it refers to praying in tongues. Donald, Ephesians six eighteen for the audience is um, and pray always in the spirit, and it's listed along with the um, weapons for spiritual warfare. The famous passage. It begins in Ephesians chapter six, verse ten, and I, I think praying in the spirit is perhaps the second most powerful weapon in all of that list of things. But it does not, Donald, refer to tongues. Praying in the Spirit does not refer to tongues in that context. To pray in the Spirit means to pray in the will of God. It means to pray with the protection of God. Uh, It means to pray with the same heart as God. It means to pray with a clean heart, a, a, a man or woman who's repented of any and all sin. So praying in the Spirit does not mean Pray in tongues. I know that's how some of the super charismatic churches refer to it, but that's not at all what it means. Now, praying in the Spirit does not exclude praying in tongues. The gift of tongues is a gift, it's a wonderful gift, it's a gift for today, and certainly when we are praying uh, in tongues um, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, it's certainly praying in the Spirit, but It's simply not what it refers to in that passage. So uh, we are not anti-praying in tongues, Donald, so don't misunderstand. It's just not what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 refers to. Good question. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one comes from Sam, uh, Pastor Ron. Explain, please, what Matthew 1527 means. Would you please explain? Thank you. Um, Sam, I'll do my best. This is a passage that I absolutely love, and um, I think most of you are familiar with it. Uh, This is a a woman, a Gentile, a Canaanite uh, woman who uh, came uh, to uh, Jesus, and, and her daughter was suffering terribly from demon possession. Um, the disciples unwisely were always trying to protect Jesus. Uh, this was a, a woman who is from Syria, Phine- Syrian Phoenicia. Um, she had a problem. She heard that Jesus was in town, he'd come to a private home, and um, uh, Jesus. Um, was received into uh, the home where he was staying and he would listen to her. Now, the reason I mention that here in this particular context, Sam, is that it's going to sound, what I'm going to read, beginning in verse 23, uh, it's going to sound like Jesus is a little bit insensitive or like he has no compassion and certainly we know that's not true. Um, all he was doing here was fishing for a way to to dig in and Give her a chance to demonstrate that she had faith. Verse 23 says, Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Um, he answered, Jesus, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That doesn't mean that he didn't care about her. It doesn't mean that he wasn't sent for the whole world. It just means that he was sent just to Israel in this particular incarnation of his ministry. And that was the pattern of the gospel message from the beginning. And this woman, who ought to be an inspiration to all of us, Sam, um, she had nothing going for uh, As her approach to Jesus, I want you to think about this, her race was wrong. Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. In the culture that she lived wrong, her gender was wrong. Uh, Women were held in very low esteem in that culture, especially in the Canaanite culture. Even the disciples were asking Jesus to send her away, but she wouldn't be discouraged. And this is where her faith begins to really grow. Genuine faith persists, and this woman just wouldn't give up. So she came to him in verse 25 and says, The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And that's what Jesus always wants to do. Jesus replied, Well, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs now this is where it sounds really harsh Uh, Jesus sounds like he's calling Gentiles dogs but remember Jesus' ministry was Jewish and that's the context and the term dogs was widely used by Jews to describe Gentiles and Jesus was just acknowledging the fact that Gentiles were outside of the kingdom of God they were outside now there's a twist here that we need to consider the word Jesus used for dogs was not the common one that was used by Jews this is a word and this is so tender this word means little puppies it's a term of affection for a pet rather than the street scavenger dogs that were so common in the Middle East and if we get that it changes the whole perception of this incident because Jesus this woman uh, is about to become Jesus' little lap puppy, a little puppy that he's stroking, that he's petting. So she said, and here's where the faith really blossoms. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is the verse you asked about, Sam, and I can imagine Jesus' face breaking into a huge smile here. This was exactly the answer that he was hoping for. Now, we need to notice a couple of things because this goes along with the faith this woman is demonstrating in Jesus. Even though she's not a Jew, the first thing is that this woman didn't deny being a dog. In other words, she was acknowledging that she was outside of God's kingdom, unworthy of the blessing she was seeking. She wasn't coming to God on the basis of of merit. She knew she had no claim on Jesus' power. She didn't deserve to be considered. And this is great humility It's being demonstrated on her part. Um, For us, Sam, I think we know none of us deserve heaven. It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that I'm going to go to heaven. None of us deserve it. I realize that in our self-esteem-seeking culture, it's contrary to everything that we've been taught to believe. But there's no one who deserves heaven. We're born condemned, and she, this woman, this Gentile, came to Jesus on the only basis she could come. On the basis of mercy all she wanted was one little crumb of mercy a request that Jesus simply couldn't refuse and now he's really smiling and then he says this woman it's the Greek word gune it's a term of respect that means one who is betrothed this woman got saved you have great faith Jesus said your request is granted and her daughter was healed from that very hour so that's the meaning of the passage Sam that's the the, the basis upon which she came it is exactly the basis the only basis that any of us can come on as well good question thank you very very much let me go to my next question it is from Kevin Uh, Pastor and how could God call David a man after his own heart after all the terrible things that he did Um, Kevin, God didn't have any expectations of David. I get this question quite a bit when it comes to David. David. David was like you and me in the flesh. Remember, David didn't have the Spirit of God living in him. The Spirit of God would come upon David to do certain things, but David was a guy who had to deal with his flesh in his own strength. You and I, we don't have to do that. We've been given the power of God living in us, but not so with David. So David struggled with his flesh. And you're right, he did terrible things. But here's, I think, the primary reason, Kevin, that that David is called a man after God's own heart. David is the best repenter, I think, in the history of the world. All you have to do is read Psalm 51 when he was repenting from his sin with Bathsheba. And David acknowledged what I just talked about with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, Uh, from the earlier question David acknowledged that he was guilty surely I was conceived in sin born in sin in my mother's womb he knew he didn't deserve anything he knew what he'd done he knew he was busted and he never once tried to escape personal responsibility for it he understood as king that he was accountable And all he did was appeal to God on the basis of his own character, not David's God's own character. It's almost as though David was saying, look, I don't deserve to be forgiven, Lord, but I know you want me to be forgiven. I know mercy is what you do best. And so I come to you on the basis of your desire, your heart, to have fellowship with me. And David begins that glorious psalm by saying against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Now we might disagree with that. We might think that David sinned against Uriah and David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against the people of Israel that he was representing. But he said, no, my sin is really sin against you, God. And then finally he could work his way to the place where he could say, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew within me a right heart or a right spirit. And that's why he was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to do the right thing. He just didn't have the power in his flesh to do it. And while David's track record was pretty good, I mean, we know the five or six really horrible incidents in David's life, but the rest of the time we look and say, you know, David did better than we would do. Kevin, all that to say this. If you want to be a man after God's own heart, I certainly do, then it means that we need to be really good, really quick at repenting. It means we have to change our behavior when the Spirit convicts us. And the best thing about David is that all the terrible things that he did are forgiven, forgotten, and thrown into the deepest, darkest ocean. That's a lesson for all of us. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five Phones were quiet last week. I hope we get some interest this week. Anonymous says, How can someone like me, who had no healthy father figure in my life, accept God as a loving father? Uh, anonymous, by faith. You need to remember that and you have to base his role in your life as a father figure on who he is and not on who your father was. Now a lot of us didn't have loving father figures in our life. My dad was tough. He was a good dad. I mean, he was a good provider and but but he was tough. Um, my dad expected a lot from me and demanded it. And he wasn't the guy that would throw his arms around me and tell me how much he loved me. My dad complimented me occasionally, but there was always a but at the end of the compliment. And so when I first came to Jesus, my first thought about a father figure was one that I had to impress all the time. But then the more I studied, the more I was in the Word... My thinking was changed. That's what Paul means in Romans 12 when he says that we should be transformed by the renewing, the new thinking of our mind. And of course, the only place we can get new thinking is in the Word of God. And then you start remembering that this is the Father who sent His Son to die for you. This is the Father who, according to Jesus, allows us to call Him Abba because He's adopted us. He didn't have to. He chose us wasn't stuck with this. You know, you have a baby, you're stuck with the baby, but when you go adopt one, you do so because you chose that child. Well, God chose you. And His track record is so good. Here's, I think, the key. Don't judge God based on people because He's not like people. The thoughts He has of you are voluminous thinks about you night and day he loves you he wants the best for you he's planned out your life if you will partner with him and walk in agreement with his will for your life and if you'll do that anonymous if you'll do that you're going to find out what a good loving father he is now you don't have to wait for him to prove yourself he already did that by sending his son just uh, yesterday um, in our study here at Calvary Chapel Uh, I was talking uh, about Jesus' crucifixion we're in Luke chapter 23 I'm going to finish it this coming Sunday but we're in Luke chapter 23 and Jesus we're with him on the cross and he started out by petitioning his father father forgive them for they know not what they do Jesus was forsaken of his father for you anonymous and for me Jesus pleaded with His Father to let this cup pass and His Father chose you over His own Son. I don't know how much more He could do to prove to us that He's a healthy Father figure. So I guess in short, don't look to humans, even your own earthly Father. Look to God, the Father. Because His for you has been demonstrated beyond any possible doubt it's not an unusual problem anonymous a lot of our counseling here at Calvary Chapel deals with people who didn't have loving father figures and especially when women who have had really really difficult even evil father figures um, it's almost impossible for them to trust And I always tell them, you've got to get to know Him. And it'll be the easiest trust you ever give. So I hope that helps you, Anonymous. Here's a question from Jesse. He says, what is the most culturally relevant book or books in the Bible? I ask because I want to convince unbelievers about Jesus. Well, Jesse, first let me say God bless you for wanting to share your faith. Um, but I think one of the things you have to remember is you can't convince anybody I think when we're looking for relevance we're missing the whole point Um, every book in the Bible is culturally relevant every book in the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit and is living and active and cuts to the heart separating that which is soul versus that which is spirit so every book, any book is good but I think your approach is wrong In order to try to win people to Christ, that never happens through convincing them, it happens by a move of God's Spirit. So, here's what you do you tell them what God has done for you. You're an expert in your own testimony. You don't have any indication how long you've been saved or how much you know, how much time you spend in the Bible. You may not know much about the Bible but here's what you're an expert on Jesse you know who you used to be and you know who you are now in Christ so tell people about the transforming power of this Jesus you met and don't worry about convincing anybody you could have the greatest arguments in the world you could present PowerPoint presentations and it wouldn't have any effect on a heart that's not been quickened to life by the Holy Spirit So you just share. Jesse, uh, Matthew chapter 13 is a parable of the sower. It's the foundational parable of all of the parables Jesus told. And Jesus says, and this is the primary point of the parable, that our job as believers is to scatter seed, seed Jesus defines as the word of God. So we go out and we just scatter seed. It falls on all kinds of ground. We don't worry about that. We just scatter seed. We just let the word go with us everywhere we go. And when we go uh, and we're throwing seed, it's going to find some fertile soil. It's going to find some hard soil. But that's not on you. So don't worry about convincing anybody. You just sow seed, the word of God, and let the Holy Spirit do the convincing now I'm not ignoring your question the most culturally relevant book in the Bible or books in the Bible they all are but I think for us the most culturally relevant book is the book of Acts I think it is also important uh, to understand to read and to understand the book of Revelation Uh, the book of Acts is the time that we're living symbolically and the book of Revelation is the time that we're heading into so um it, it really doesn't matter in terms of relevance. It just just get in your word. And don't worry about the process. Well, what's a two thousand year old book have to do with me? None of that matters, Jesse. You just declare Jesus Christ alive, crucified, and risen from the dead. And you let people know what he's done for you, and it will change everything here is a question last one for this half of the program um anonymous I know God hates divorce but my wife cheated on me I want to know if divorce is possible uh, anonymous yes if your wife cheated on you divorce is possible now here's the one thing you don't want to do you don't want to make an emotional decision you don't want to make a decision when you're hurting you don't want to make a decision like this um because you're angry and you you just want to get back at her um but God gives you the freedom in the case of adultery to divorce so here's what you ought then to do the first thing is to really really pray for your wife I know it's hard you may have to pray through clenched teeth you may be that hurt that angry but pray for her I and mean, you want her in heaven if nothing else so pray for her as you pray for her God is going to soften your heart toward her the second thing that you need to do is you need to spend time in the Word and get God's heart on this issue let Jesus give you the opportunity to tell you what he told Paula when she was praying for me for those 13 years when God said to her look I love him and I hate divorce will you let me love him through you if she hadn't have said yes anonymous I would not have been here today so pray for her and then seek the heart of God toward her and then seek the heart of God for the, His will for you. You know, one of the things that I've learned, and this is a hard thing to explain to people, we like black and white rules, but but because God knows the future, if you sit down and pray, Lord, will you give me the freedom? Now, you've got the freedom in the Word, but will, will is it your will that I divorce her? Or do you want me to hang in here with her for a while? His answer is going to be based on what he knows. I've seen people in your situation, both men and women, who instantly God said, yes, you're free to divorce. Let him go. Let her go. Others, even when the sin has been more egregious, he said to others, no, stay. Why would the answer be different? Because God knows how your spouse is going to respond. Yes, God hates divorce. It breaks his heart. We divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. We sin because our hearts are hard. But it may be God's will. It's always his first choice, but it may be God's will to reconcile. And Anonymous, I hope this gives you some encouragement. If that's what he says, I have seen marriages that were a thousand times better after the adultery and after the forgiveness and the reconciliation than they were before. Honest marriages, better communication. So seek the Lord on this. You do have the freedom to divorce. But if you do so without seeking God's heart on this, you'll probably regret it. He may tell you yes, he may tell you no, but his will, isn't that what you want? Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program today. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorronKSLR at gmail.com. That's Pastor Ron KSLR at gmail.com. I need to learn to stand.
0: back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
1: welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR here is a question from Maria. She's asking for tips on dealing with depression for her. Maria, depression is one of the enemy's fiercest weapons. When we are depressed, we don't feel like doing anything. We want to remain stationary. We want to pull the covers over our head and just, just forget there's a world out there. And I always tell people, Maria, that the devil loves a stationary target. So you got to get moving. you got to do what you don't feel like doing. When you are depressed, you're fighting. And even if you don't feel like you have any strength, it's the most important fight you're ever going to have. If he can get you, if the enemy can get you in this cycle of depression, if he can get you to be um, inactive, um, he's going to win he's got the upper hand so do what you don't feel like doing Maria. get up first thing Paul always tells women this and, and uh, it's, it's the best advice most practical advice I've ever heard she says uh, get out of bed take a shower and then call me I don't feel like getting out of bed no you take a shower and then you call me when you're done so you got to get up you got to get moving you got to open the Bible. The last thing you feel like doing when you're depressed is opening the Bible. You got to talk to the Lord. This is the times from the depths of your soul. You know the the Psalm deep cries out to deep. It's in times like this where you can really call out to God from a depth of pain that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. But you've got to get moving. Next thing I would say is be involved in church, even if you don't feel like it. Start serving others. You know, Maria, the the more you think about you, the more miserable you're going to be. So focus your thoughts and your energy on other people. And when you do that, out of obedience, the power of the Holy Spirit will hit you, and then you're going to find no longer is it you serving, it's Christ in you, and then just being used by the Lord to minister to others is going to change you. The biggest problem, I'm repeating this because it's important, is that when we're depressed, we don't feel like doing anything at all. But that's the time when we have to fight the hardest. And we got to just realize that we're in a fight for our life. For those of you in the audience who are prone to being depressed, um, you got to put on the gloves, you got to fight you really got to fight. One of the things that uh, I I like to do, and I'm not prone to depression, but uh, if I'm troubled by things, I like to read the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse uh, 10 uh, through about verse 18. Uh, I just like to focus on Him. So that's the best counsel I can give you, Maria. Just get moving. Thanks for the question. Let's go to... Uh, shirts now and talk with Scott on line one. Scott, thank you for calling. You're on the air.
2: Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well today. Thank you.
2: All right. I'm uh, a little delayed. You had a, uh, this was from last Wednesday. Um, I think someone wrote in and they were talking about sharing Jesus and how their pastor was after them. They needed to speak, what have you. And I wanted to comment that day, but for whatever reason, my phone would not call your number. (laughs) <laughs> so I wanted to share it today. One okay. of the things that we do, um, particularly um, we, we have so many people that eat out all the time and you were talking about striking up a conversation. And mm-hmm. what we commonly will do is uh, the waiter, the waitress, will invite them um, and ask them if they have any prayer requests that we're going to be praying for our meal and that if they have anything we could pray for them. And then I think one more step, you know, many times they'll say yes, and they'll share it with us, but then you need to invite them to pray with you, and many times they will. Um, and a few times where, where somebody has actually said no, no, they don't want anything to do with it, one of the things I notice is they tend to kind of hover around our table and listen to their conversations, you know? So you still have an opportunity to even minister to them. And. Uh, also um, we've had we've had people that accepted the Lord we dedicated their life. Um, there was one day there was uh, I, I don't know an illness or something going on with the, the, someone there at the restaurant and they literally brought everybody out of the kitchen gathered around our <laughs> table and we all prayed together. So I just um, for that person that was concerned about sharing and being able to get that conversation going it's, a, it's just a wonderful opportunity every time you go out to eat. And I just thought maybe you'd want to make a comment on that also.
1: Well, thank you, Scott, for that. You're you're always so encouraging to me, and the Lord just spoke to you, or to me through you, Scott. So thank you for that. Um, What what Scott just talked about is the reason that we want to open a restaurant here at Calvary Chapel. Um, You know, you you look at the book of Acts, and there was always food and fellowship. uh, Acts chapter 2, that you couldn't keep believers away well, one of our pieces of, of vision for our ministry is a free restaurant. Now, we're not talking about just this little tiny, cheap, get some soup in a sandwich restaurant. We're talking about a good restaurant, not, not you know, where you can get real food, but it's good food where there, you're going to be served and there's good chefs and and all of that. And And I believe, now, you know, we don't have any money, so you all can pray for me, but um, I believe this is something the Lord is going to do very, very soon. We're getting closer and closer, and He's bringing people along who who share the vision. That's the same way He started all of the other ministries that we do here that that are equally impossible. Um, but but imagine somebody comes into the restaurant and they're hurting. Uh, could be a homeless person, could be a business person, but you can tell they're troubled. Can you imagine what it'd be like to have people come out of the kitchen as God suggested and pray? Can you imagine what it would be like to have every single server, every single cook, every single dishwasher, or bus boy, or bus girl, every one of them be saved and praying while they're working for the people who are the guests in the restaurant? And then, you know, the, the, the vision's beginning to get clarity. Again, the people that God has called together, uh, they're, they're, they're in place. Uh, all we're waiting for is, is for the Lord to say go and, and then we'll do what we've done with these other free ministries but when we do a restaurant it's going to be a good one and, and, and Scott's hit on those people their guards are down you can be friendly with people now relative to sharing your faith with people restaurants are great places uh, because you can always talk about the food you can talk about what they're wearing there's all kinds of things that you can do um, but um, just share uh, if you really are shy, um, pick up somebody else's check. I can't tell you how many times Paul and I have told the, the server. Now, we don't usually tell them who we are or what we're doing. Um, but, but we'll tell the, their server, uh, bring their check to us. You don't need to tell them anything, but just bring their check to us. And before they even find that out, we can open a line of dialogue and introduce ourselves. And then we're out. But but it's really not as hard to share our faith as people make it. Scott, thank you because the Lord just used you in my life. Let's go to Jimmy on line two. Jimmy, thanks for holding. You're on the air.
2: Hey, um, hi, how are you doing? Good, Jimmy. Um, um I, you know, I know I've come with
0: you this morning. First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve. Okay, I talked I talked about with some people in the church, and they disagreed. with me. And they were very. Um, and they they use these scriptures as far as Romans chapter sixteen through three, and Philippians chapter four verses two to three. And I read it, and I didn't. I didn't like memorize it, but it's talking about a deacon, uh, a woman who's a deacon,
1: mm-hmm.
0: something like that. And they said that that's not;
1: it that doesn't apply to me. They there are women pastors. Yeah, but, but but Jimmy, what what you need to do when you make people make people make sense of what they're saying? I would have asked, uh-huh. what is it? What does a deacon have to do with the pastor? They're completely right. different roles. It falls under the, Why? It
0: still falls under the pastor. Right?
1: No, a, deac, a deacon. A deacon. The word for deacon is diakonos, It's a servant. Yeah, that's just just everybody, everybody who serves in a church is doing the work of a deacon and in this case Phoebe was a deaconess um, and and to be honored but but the role of a deacon uh, in the early church or in in the church in 2020 has nothing whatsoever to do with the role of a pastor um you know we've got women who serve in 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 children's ministry and usher ministry they're all doing the work of a deacon uh, we've got women who serve in teaching ministries, um, just not teaching men. We have women who counsel. We have women. The point I'm trying to make is that that uh, the the Timothy passage: I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Then then in that context, she must be silent. Um, that has nothing to do with anything other than being in a position of leadership in a church. And a deacon, by definition, is a servant rather than a leader. And the only position, the only role that is forbidden by men, uh, or forbidden by God uh, for a woman to to take part in, is that of the uh, pastor in a church having authority, teaching the Bible and having authority over men. Now, here's the key, Jimmy, for proving this with with a simple hermeneutic. The next verse... Says for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived; it was the woman who was deceived, and became yeah. the, became a sinner. And so, what 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 Paul does is he goes back to uh, Genesis to establish a foundation that tells us this was not just for that time; this is for all times. The other thing that we need to remember about First Timothy chapter two, the context there is orderly worship. So God's not saying that a woman can't be anything in the church except a pastor. And the people say, well, what about Phoebe or what about uh, Junius or what about any of the others? Uh, Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. God's word doesn't say they can't be prophetesses or, or, or employ the gift of prophecy. It just says they can't do this one thing. And for the life of me... Uh, Jimmy, I don't understand why people want to hold on to the one thing God said don't do instead of doing the, all of the, the multitude of things that he said they could do. So that was as simple as it can be. And when somebody, and I get this a lot with, with people, um, they have no authority to stand on. And and the fact that there are women pastors in churches doesn't make it right and in fact, a, a church that has a woman pastor doesn't have a pastor. And we need to understand that. Don't apologize for it. God makes the rules. It's His church. And and this is about orderly worship. So uh, a church with a woman pastor is a church that's out of order. And um, doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean that the woman doesn't have the gift of teaching. It just means that she's being disobedient. So it, it's... it's uh, it's it's a groundless argument and uh, we need to, to, to call people on it, make them accountable. I've asked a lot of women, Jimmy, over the years, so why is it you think that that one verse that is as clear as it can be and deals specifically with the subject, why do you think that doesn't apply to you? And I've never gotten an answer that made any sense at all. And I go to a lot of things with pastors where there are women pastors there who are they all know they listen to the radio program many of them do and they know where I stand and I can feel the chill a little bit in the room but but it's okay it's God's church he makes the rules and, and we're supposed to be obedient so Jimmy don't cave in I know you won't 340 9585 for your live calls and questions uh, Abraham asks an interesting question uh, how could John the Baptist doubt who Jesus was uh, Aaron, we have to be a little bit easier on John the Baptist than we are um, yes Jesus was related to him um, John baptized him and acknowledged who he was um, I should be baptized by you yes you're right but do this to fulfill all righteousness Jesus said so John the Baptist knew exactly who Jesus was but John was a human and he had doubts in difficult times. Because John was a Jew, he believed that when the Messiah came, that he would establish his kingdom. And Jesus really was not establishing the kingdom, at least not initially. And like the Jews who rejected Jesus throughout his ministry, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Well, John had expectations. That's why when he sent uh, his disciples to Jesus, are you the one, or should we wait for another? Jesus said, you tell him this. I've healed the sick. I've cast out demons. I've raised men." In other words, this is what the Old Testament predicted that Christ would do when he came. Those are the things I've been doing. And, you know, John just didn't understand that Jesus was going to turn his attention to Gentiles. So he doubted him. He doubted him because he was in jail. He doubted him because he was being abused. And like all of us who have expectations when things don't go the way we expect them to go, then doubt creeps in. And that was exactly what happened with John the Baptist. But he knew Jesus said he was the greatest man of all other than those who were saved. So let's give John the Baptist a break. You know, I've had a whole bunch of doubts. When we first came to uh, San Antonio almost 25 years ago I remember thinking every day God there's nobody coming I mean it's so hard I expected that when I got here things would be easier I expected that if you told me to start a church and I showed up that people would actually come and the enemy was always there to whisper in my ear and sometimes he would shout see God doesn't want you here you need to go back home so the doubts come even though we know well John the Baptist knew exactly who Jesus was but in the despair of being in prison knowing his life was about to end he asked the question that I think most of us would ask Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here's a question from a mother she said Pastor Ron would you talk about spanking is it okay or should it be avoided um a mother. Uh, These are hard questions because I don't know your kids, I don't know what they respond to in terms of discipline but spanking in and of itself is clearly biblical. Jesus says if we spare the rod, that's the idea there is corporal punishment, spanking then our child will be spoiled. Um, We are proponents of the Bible. The Bible says to do it. Now the problem is we've got to an entire culture that thinks spanking a child is child abuse. It's not child abuse. Some children only respond to spanking. Children that don't respond to it shouldn't be spanked. You, we're smarter than kids. We're bigger than kids. We should take advantage of the fact and figure out other ways to discipline our children when possible. But we don't need to be afraid of spanking. Now let me give you some rules spanking should never be given when angry never they should never be given um, when they're accompanied by a, a, a raise in volume when you spank use your calm voice when somebody is going to get spanked they need to know that you love them my dad used to say Ronnie this is going to hurt me more than hurt you it didn't but I got the idea You need to let your child know that you love them and this hurts you just like it's going to hurt them. But because they were willfully disobedient after having been warned, they've left you no choice. And they need to know that you're going to be consistent and follow through on these things, you know, to threaten spanking and then not do it. Well, these kids are too smart. They've got you wrapped around their finger. So, yes, spanking is fine, you just have to make sure that you're not spanking in anger, making sure that your child knows he or she is loved, making them understand that this is a consequence of bad behavior. And then when you're done, you need to give them a hug. And then when it's over, forget about it. That's when we get a chance to act like God. No, I forgive you. Forget about it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's okay. You've been punished. I've forgotten all about it. So I think spanking is necessary. Now I'm going to give you a couple of other things. I think there is a time when your child is too big to be placed over your lap, then I think spanking is counterproductive. I know there are people who disagree with me, but... But when a child is big enough to resist and, and, and effectively resist, then they're too big. You, you can think of other ways to discipline your child. But let me tell you something, timeouts don't do it, um, withholding one thing from them for a short time doesn't do it. There has to be a consequence, a measurable consequence to willful disobedience. So it, spanking is acceptable. Um, it's probably something that you need to keep quiet about Um, we've actually had we've got a school we spank kids if necessary um, with parents permission the parents come down to do it Um, but we've had people call and report us for child abuse and um, parents sign contracts spanking is good you know what the best thing is we hardly ever have to do that anymore because the kids all know it they've all been trained I know this sounds terrible, but please understand my heart here. Kids are like pets. They need to be trained. They want to be trained. They don't know. Their job, they're built to push limits, they're pushed to, to, to push buttons and test us. And they don't get really comfortable till those limits stop moving. And they need to know you're going to be consistent. So, a mother, I hope that answers your question. We are inside about four minutes now, I think, for the program. Um, Joseph says, Pastor Ron, why would anyone want the gift of tongues if we can't understand what we're saying? Paul says it's better to use intelligent words, words that we can understand. Um, Joseph, he said it is better, but he didn't say the other wasn't good. Now, here's the thing we've got to understand, Joseph. Every gift God gives is a great gift. And the gift of tongues in particular is a gift that edifies the user of the gift. When we are using the gift of tongues, we're doing what I call a vertical prayer. We're praying not to other people, we're praying to God. And God understands our heart, He understands the language even if we don't. So by faith, we've got to understand that I'm exercising a gift that strengthens my walk with the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm exercising a gift that, that is just between me and God it increases intimacy and then we've got to whether we understand it or not we've got to just lean on the character of God and say if you want me to have it I want it you know Joseph I have a lot of people that really want the gift of tongues but because it doesn't make sense they won't receive it and I always ask them well, where's the faith in that why would you think God is sort of tricking you? Or why do you think he would give you a gift that doesn't have value for you? Now, it appears to me that the gift of tongues is the least of all of the gifts because it's vertical and there's no horizontal application. But even the least of the gifts given by God, isn't that enough to encourage you to want more? Joseph, I, I, I have the gift of tongues. Um, and I exercise that gift on a fairly regular basis not something I do every day Um, but you know there's times when I don't know what to pray there's times when my heart is burdened and the fact that I don't understand doesn't deter me because God understands and when I take that step of faith into the spirit and use the gift of tongues then here's what I know for sure I know my prayer is being heard if my prayer is heard then I know I have what I've asked for Now I don't have the gift of interpretation. There are times when I clearly have an idea that I'm not praying for me or praying for someone I know, praying for someone else, it allows me to intercede. again the basic rule is if God gives a gift it's going to be a great gift and we should desire it the Apostle Paul himself yes he said it's better to, to pray using intelligent words but he also said the same author I pray that you all spoke in tongues more than I do so why would we even question that it just doesn't make any sense to me and Joseph I think a lot of people in their search for understanding are missing out on the initial foray into the supernatural use of the gifts between them and the Lord. So reconsider, Joseph. Let the Bible be your guide. Hey, appreciate you tuning in today. Thanks for calling. This has been the Word to Stand on for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Ladies, men, tonight we're going to have our men's and women's Bible studies. Paula will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Ken the men. we also have our high school and junior high studies, so come together as a family. I'll be back tomorrow. See you then.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.